the privileges, uh, the neat opportunities that you get to have as a pastor is the privilege and the honor, the opportunity to perform weddings. And I've just, I've enjoyed that part of the ministry of getting to be alongside new couples and new families as they go through uh, the beginning, the starting, starting point of their marriage um, and so forth. But weddings can be really, really complicated things. Um, I kind of have a rule, a kind of a, a strategy when I go into planning and sitting down with a family with a wedding. And, and that is to keep the wedding, keep the actual ceremony, you know, anything outside of that, um, before or after, it really have nothing to do with. But the actual ceremony from start to finish to keep that as simple as possible. Because regardless of how much planning goes in, how much preparation, how sharp you are, every single wedding uh, has a problem of some sort. Something goes wrong in every single wedding. It doesn't matter how long you've been a pastor. It doesn't matter how great the couple is. It doesn't matter how professional the church is. Something goes wrong in every wedding. So I try to keep it as simple as possible because the less components, the less things, as simple as it is, the, the less that can go, go wrong. Um, there's a lot of different components in a wedding. A lot of different people in a wedding that create issues somewhat and create problems. You've got a bride who is usually stressed to the max. There's been some sort of fight with her mother before the wedding or something like that. So she's just there either angry, excited, overwhelmed, just, just stressed. You've got a, a groom who's scared to death, who's nervous, clammy. He, he's fumbling over his words. So to give them as little as possible to do it. Then you've got all these, all these wedding party people who are just kids most of the time. And they're not used to being in front of people. They're, they're not used to wearing clothes like they're wearing. And then sometimes you have kids involved. That's just, anyway, one of the worst weddings that I ever went to or, or, or heard of or witnessed or anything like that was, was, was with a pastor that, that kind of felt the opposite. He loved to do unique things in a wedding, loved to have extras, kind of different things taking place. And um, so I was at this wedding and he had come up with something extra to do. He, he decided that in the wedding, uh, one of the verses of Scripture that he was going to quote, he was going to have the best man quote that and read that verse uh, for the couple um, during the message. And so, let me just say, bad idea with that. Like, groom, best man, it's an honor to be a best man, but you've got enough responsibility. Oftentimes you have the ring, you got to just keep your buddy um, alert, awake, alive, calm him down, all that kind of stuff. Big responsibility. And then to add something like this, just I, I could see this was not going to go go well. And so he said, all right, listen, I want you, I'm going to give you a cue. And when I show you that cue, I want you to read 1 John 4.18. Now, 1 John 4.18 is a great verse to use um, in a wedding. It says something in effect of, of perfect love uh, casts out all fear. Uh, there is no fear in love. And so great verse. And the problem was, though, the pastor didn't know that the best man wasn't really a church-going guy and wasn't very familiar with the Bible at all. So unfamiliar with the Bible that he didn't know that there are actually four books of the Bible with the same name written by the same man of John. Had no clue that there was John, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John. Didn't even know where John was. So when he gets his Bible out before the service, he goes to the table of contents, he finds John. That's it. He turns to verse 418. He's got it. He's got his mark. He's got it ready to go. And the pastor gives him the cue. And this is what that young man read. John chapter 4 verse 18, where it says, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
So here's my philosophy. It's weddings end with a kiss, and so that's my philosophy. Keep it simple, stupid. All right, keep it simple in those things. So as we come to John chapter 2, we meet the miracle-working Jesus, and we see him work his first miracle of all places at a wedding. And the miracle happens in the wedding because of, guess what? Something went wrong. There was a problem. And Jesus is called to task. Jesus is invited, requested, and asked to do something in this wedding to fix the problem here. And for the first time in Jesus' life and ministry, recorded in the Gospels, we see Jesus do the miraculous. So I'm going to look at that this morning, and if you would draw your attention to John chapter 2, verse 1, and stand in honor of God's Word, if you would, this morning. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So so they took it. When the master of feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called, called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine at first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You can be seated. What an odd way to get started. What a, what a unique and strange story this is that Jesus performs his very first miracle. I mean, he, he, he steps on the scene and he begins to show his miraculous power here in, in this situation. Because when you think about this situation, when you look at this story, it's not necessarily life-changing for anyone there. You know, there's not a person that couldn't see that now can see, that couldn't walk that now can walk. There's not water that's been walked on. There's not a, a dead man that's now alive. It was, this is rather an insignificant situation and predicament and problem and when you think about it, it's kind of a, a, a small miracle in a sense. It's just, just different. Jesus turns water into wine. Now, now, let me just say, in case you're wondering, oh, the preacher's preaching on water turning into wine. wonder what he thinks about alcohol. Let me, just, let me just say, first of all, this is not a sermon on alcohol. I have a sermon on alcohol. I have a bunch of sermons on those. We'll, we'll get to those at another time in another place. But if you're thinking that, well, Jesus turned water into wine, that means we can drink all we want. You have totally missed the point of this story. 
out of this, this parable nonetheless. Wine was a little bit different in their day than it, than it is in our day. It was a lot more watered down. The same thing that you buy at the store is, is not some, is the same thing that was been served that day. Very oftentimes, because of the lack of clean water, see, they didn't get their water from a tap, from a purifier, it came from a well. Very oftentimes, it would be contaminated with something, could harm the body a little bit, and so there would need to be some sort of a solution added to it or something added to it to purify it somewhat. Wine was used at that. It's a purifying agent. And so very oftentimes you'd have water with some wine in it that would purify the water, be safe to drink. And sometimes the wine would be one part wine, three parts water. One part wine, ten parts water. And so it just wasn't quite the same that we experience um, here. But th that's not the point of this. The point is really what we find at the very end of the story, that Jesus manifested his glory. This was the first miracle, the first sign to show the world who he was. Now, it's at a wedding. Now, weddings are a big deal today. Weddings are complex and complicated today. Well, they, they were also that way in Jesus' day. Weddings were a big deal, complex and complicated. But there were quite a few differences between weddings of Jesus' day in New Testament times and weddings within our culture. N a number of things are, are different. In our, in our culture, weddings just kind of a one-day thing. There's preparation beforehand. There's like a rehearsal. There's a party to follow. Uh, but the ceremony of the wedding, the actual wedding, usually only takes about, you know, 20 minutes to an hour. Um, that's not the way it was. A wedding in Jesus' day and in the Jewish culture would have been a whole week long. So it wasn't that there was just this one ceremony. The wedding was considered to be all seven days, the whole week, every event, everything that took place. People would come in time, family would gather around, and daily they would celebrate. They had different things they would go through and do and so forth. But it was a big feast, a lot of fun. There was a lot of attention put around the whole week of the wedding and, and the couple within that. The, the wedding, the whole ceremony would conclude at the end of the week with the consummation of the marriage. And so it was a big process, a big deal. Another thing that was different about the weddings of their day than the weddings of our day. And dads and daughters, you would love this because in our culture, the family of the bride fits the bill for the wedding. Not in Jesus' culture, not in the New Testament culture. It, it, was, it was the opposite. Well, it wasn't even really the opposite. It, it wasn't just that the family of the groom fit the bill. No, actually the groom fit the bill for the wedding. Dads, wouldn't you like that? The man that was going to marry your daughter had to actually pay for the whole thing in the first place. I mean, he asked her, she said yes, and now you have to pay for it. Not so in their day. See, it was actually a custom that this whole process, this whole week, this whole ceremony would be a demonstration of this man's responsibility, this man's ability, and this man's capability to provide for his wife and his family. So he would pay for the entire process, the entire party and everything that went on that week to show I can handle this, to show I'm a man and I've got responsibility and I can take on this young lady and I can provide for her and I can care for her and I can care for the family that we will bring into this world, so forth. So, what happens in this story when the party falls apart and the wine runs out would have been a really embarrassing thing for the groom. Everyone would have thought when the wine runs out, what's up with this guy? I mean, he can't even 
you know, he's irresponsible, he, he's not a good planner, he should have planned better than this, or, or does he even have the ability to provide for this woman? This, this, this would have been a humiliating thing, and everyone there would have noticed. That's why there was such commotion about it. That's why the master of the ceremonies was involved in this. That's why Jesus' mom steps in and gets involved in this. Because this would have been an embarrassing, humiliating thing. It could have very likely been that because of this, the wedding's off. And dad of the bride and family of the bride says, whoa, 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 time out. You can't handle it. We're not going to give our daughter over to you. And so you have a, a situation here. You have an embarrassing moment. And Jesus' mother asks Jesus to help. It's likely that Jesus' mother was involved and friend of the family, maybe involved in helping put the whole process together, the whole week together. And so this was something that concerned her, something that she would have been maybe involved with uh, very deeply. And she says to Jesus, they have no wine. I wonder why she asked Jesus that. You know, I think maybe, I mean, by this point, Jesus is 30 years old. He's an adult. He's a man. But if you think about it, for those 30 years, every time that Mary had some sort of problem or issue or dilemma that she let her oldest son Jesus weigh in on, he had the solution. He knew what to do. I mean, like, like, he had a, a perfect record of that. Like, like every time we ask Jesus what we should do or what he thinks we should do or can he handle this or can he help us out here, he always does. He was faithful at that. And, I mean, he's, he's God. Of course he knows how to handle things. And so Mary probably picked up on, my son is like the smartest man ever, the wisest man ever, and he can do just about, or he can do anything. So when there's a little problem like this, well, she just, she just goes to the first thing that she knows will work. Let's ask Jesus. And Jesus' response to me is strange. That's what he says. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, if you have a mom, and you've ever called her woman, you distinctly remember the response. You may have a scar from the response of that. What is Jesus doing here? This is his mother. This is the woman that brought him, I mean, that brought him into this world, and he calls her woman. And then he says, what does that have to do with me? I don't, as you look closer at this, I don't think that was really the nature of the response at all. When you actually look at what Jesus said, this word woman in its original language, it's, it's not one in the way that we would use this. You know, you call someone a woman or man out of somewhat disrespect. That's not the case here. This would have been a word that would have been a lot more endearing, one of maybe ma'am. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's showing respect for her. He's showing endearment for her and care for her, but he's also distancing himself to show that he has another agenda, that he answers to higher authority. Amen. What does this have to do with me? And then he says this, my hour has not yet come. You know, Jesus' entire ministry his entire life 
was about the hour. In fact, numerous times throughout the Gospel of John, there's mention of this particular hour. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8, verse 20. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. We hear Jesus himself say in John chapter 12, verse 27, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. John chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This hour that Jesus speaks of here in John chapter 2 was, the, was the, the, the entire picture, the whole culmination of everything that he was and why he came here. The cross, to give his life, to obey the will of his Father, and to accomplish the work the Father had set out for him. Jesus shows us that his business is about the Father's purpose for his life. That the reason he came here was to do something specific and in particular. And that was to be glorified, to glorify the Father by glorifying himself. And in that glorification, that would be mean his death. Death on the cross. And so Jesus shows us here that every step he took, every work he acted, every word he spoke was about that one hour. That moment where he would bear the wrath of his father for the sake of me and you. And the hour had not yet come. It shows us that Jesus was about his father's business. There's another story that you might remember. It's really the only story that we have of Jesus' early days, of his young life. His family traveled down to the temple to do their uh, annual worship there and loaded up all the kids and left and forgot Jesus. Didn't realize that he wasn't with them. Once they get a little bit of ways away, they realize Jesus is with them. They go back, they search for Jesus, and they find Jesus. And where do they find Jesus? They find Jesus at the temple. And of course, you got to understand, Joseph and Mary are, are, are panicking, they're frustrated. What are you doing, Jesus? You know you had us worried. What did Jesus say? Well, you should have known that I must be about my father's business. John tells us in verse 11 that this was the first of his signs that Jesus did that manifested his glory. Well, very clearly here, we see the glory of an obedient son. A son committed and dedicated to what his father in heaven sent him to do. The glory of an obedient son. So G Mary responds in verse 5. To the servants, she says, uh, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, the way I've, I've always read this is, is that Mary was totally ignoring Jesus. And she, she's mom. And this is one of those places where in verse 5, I, I always looked at it and said that, well, Mary's just pulling out her mom card here. And you know how that works. Because here's the truth. When mama ain't happy, what? Nobody's happy. Mary knows that. That's all that I always thought is Mary knew that, hey, this is her son. He's an obedient son. He's going to do what I told him to do. He'd always done what he was going to do. And so Jesus says, woman, what does it have to do with me? This is, this, is not, this is not my hour. And Mary just hears that, totally ignores what, she, what, what, what it was. And she just goes to the servant and says, hey, listen, do whatever, do whatever he tells you to do. And then I imagine that she looks back at Jesus and says, I told them that you're going to do 
what I told you to do, and you're, they're going to do whatever you do. So get it done. I don't, think, I don't think that's the way it went. I think what Mary's actually doing here in this statement, do whatever he tells you, is that Mary's backing off. Mary's submitting to the desire and the will of Jesus here when she says, okay, I mean, guys, just do whatever he, he says to do. If it's nothing, it's nothing. If it's something, it'll be, it'll be worth it. So just do whatever he says. What we see is that this mother Mary is submitting to the lordship and leadership of her son. And so Jesus begins to work. And he begins to orchestrate the plan for his first miracle. It tells us that there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said, fill the jars with the water. It's not insignificant that John gives us the details of what Jesus used. I mean, I don't know how big the party was, but I, I do wonder because it's tough to pick up something big. I wonder why Jesus didn't have them just fill up milk jugs or five-gallon buckets. Why was it that he, he used something which appears to be so heavy? Six stone water jars, 20 to 30 gallons. These things are huge and they're heavy. He has them filled to the brim. They're unmovable at that point. It creates kind of a very inconvenient situation uh, that they have to then take some and move it over here. Take some, move it over. You can't pick up the whole thing and move the whole thing. This wasn't one of those like fountain drinks or, or a container that you just press the button at the bottom and, and it came out. And this is a unique thing. Why, why was it that Jesus chose these things? They weren't for drinking. There was a different purpose. In fact, this would probably be, have been the first time anyone had drunken something out of these containers. Because it tells us these, these containers, these stone jars, were for Jewish rites of purification. When you look deeply at the Jewish law, they were a clean people. There was a, a need for purification for a number of different reasons. They were a clean people, so they took regular baths. And it was very likely that some of these jars were used for that. They would do their baths from these jars. But we also see that in the process of worship, the people of God, the Jews, had to go through a ceremonial cleansing. There was a purification they had to do. These jars were whatever family's jars set aside for that purpose, for their religious rites, for their process of becoming right before God and being able to prepare their lives, prepare their hands, prepare uh, to, to, to do all the things they needed to do in order to meet with God, to, to worship God. So it seems as what Jesus is doing is that he is playing out a parable. It tells us in verse 11 that this is the first of the signs. What Jesus is doing here is he's giving us a sign. He's helping us see something. Jesus chose something particular that is going to explain explain what his hour will be like. What Jesus is saying, it'll be, it'll be like I, I will take the purification rituals of Israel and replace them with a distinctively new way of purification. Me. My 
blood. Keep in mind that in John chapter 6, verse 55, Jesus clearly said, My blood is true drink. Unless you drink the blood of the Son of Man, you will have no life in you. The only other time that Jesus deals with wine that we read in the Gospels is in a room upstairs with his disciples. It was the night of his arrest and betrayal. And Jesus is eating a meal with his disciples and he takes the cup of wine. Do you remember what he says? This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus manifests his glory by showing us the glory of an obedient son, but he also manifests his glory by showing us, by giving us a sign, an acted out parable of how his own death, his own blood, his own hour will be the final, decisive, ultimate purification for sins. That there is no longer a need for any sort of ritual cleansing or religious process. That there is only one way to be clean before God and only one way to be right before God. John plainly says it in Revelation chapter 7 verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood, the Lamb, the glory of Jesus that is manifested here, that is shown here, is that he alone, once and for all, makes purification for sin. You don't turn to ritual. You don't turn to religion. You don't turn to works. You don't clean yourself up. No, you turn as you are to Jesus. He is all you need. We see the glory of the ultimate purifier. And so the water turns to wine. I don't know where in the process that was noticed. But these servants saw it. And they're the only ones that knew it. No one else witnessed this necessarily. No one else knew what was going on. Certainly the master of the ceremonies, when he is brought the wine, he tastes it. He has no idea where it came from. He, he didn't know what took place. He just knew this is good. But it tells us the servants knew. And so the master of the feast calls the groom. He tastes this wine. And he, whoa, whoa. Hey, hey, grooms, come over here, man. Come over here. Hey, this is good. And, and let me tell you something. This is also very surprising. Because up until this point, I thought you were a bum. Because you couldn't even provide, you ran out, man. And, and man, her family was about to bail on you. We were all talking about you behind your back. Like this was a really embarrassing thing. But man, you have blown us out of the water. You see, because the way these things usually work is they serve the best stuff up front. And when they go down the road and the party gets going further, they, they serve the cheap stuff and the stuff that, that they just have, have left over. But man, you have, you have, you have thrown us one here, man. You saved the best for last. And you're something special. Like, you're the man. I wonder 
what that groomsman said. That, that groom said. I, I, I wonder if he was like, thanks. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> or I wonder, if, I wonder if he was like, I, 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 don't, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. It doesn't say. In fact, it doesn't even say that, that Jesus said anything. In fact, the, the picture that we're given is that the, the, the scene moves on. Jesus moves on, and he doesn't even draw attention to the fact that this is me. This is my sign. This is my, my doing. It's a contrast between the one who ran out of wine and the one who provided wine jumps out. You see, a human groom failed. But the heavenly groom provided. A human groom will always fail. Those of you that are human grooms know that's true. I don't care how powerful you are, how wealthy you are, how smart you are, how sharp you are. Guys, men, we fail. And if you don't think you do, just ask your wife and she'd be glad to explain to you all the many failures of you. But Jesus never fails. Jesus doesn't let the wine run out. And that's the way it is with Jesus in everything. Humans fail to be all that we ought to be. We, we come up short. We all fail, we all make mistakes, we, we come up short. But, but quietly, omnipotently, Jesus plays the role of the all-providing, all-sufficient bridegroom. And out of water comes wine, better than any husband could ever provide. So the third way that Jesus manifests his glory, that his glory jumps off the pages of this story, his glory showed up there that day in this sign, was it showed and proved that he was to be, he himself is the all-providing bridegroom for his bride. For the great assembly of all of those of us who trust in him, we see the glory of the all-providing, all-sufficient groom. Here's the point of this. Here's the point is that Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. Amen. He is all that you need. He fills the request. He fills the jars. He fills the stomach. But he also fills the soul. And he fills our life for eternity. He is all we need for life and salvation. And the response that day is the exact response that Jesus desired and that Jesus desires today. 
You see, the response that day wasn't, whoa, look at this. He's alive. He's awake. He's doing something now. Took him 30 years. Now here he goes. It's not the response at all. The response is simply this. The last phrase of verse 11. This is the response that Jesus was after that day. And this is the response that Jesus is after today. And his disciples believed in Friends, that's why Jesus does the miraculous. That's why Jesus did this simple, insignificant thing. John tells us elsewhere in John chapter 20, verse 30, he sums the whole ministry and life and miracles of Jesus up with this statement. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's what I want you to understand. Because Jesus is sufficient in the big and the small. You can trust him with everything. Tells us here that this was the first sign of many signs that he performed. John actually records eight different signs that manifest his glory, that show his glory. And the other signs that appear in the Gospel of John are much bigger than this. I mean, this is actually really small and insignificant. It's almost, almost just strange when you compare it to the other miracles that Jesus performs. I mean, he, he walks on water. He, he, he does, he makes blind people see. He raises a, a lame man up. He, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And of course, the greatest sign that he did was that he rose from the dead himself. All these other signs are big signs, but this sign, little, small. I mean, he saves a party. He saves the reputation of a young man. People continue on, move on, and Jesus moves on. Because he has much bigger work to do. I want you to think about this for a minute. If you can trust Jesus for the big stuff, what do you mean big stuff? If we can trust Jesus Christ for our salvation, the biggest thing ever, If you can trust Jesus Christ with your eternity, if you can put that in his hands and believe that he is sufficient for that, that he can save you from the pit of hell, the grip of sin, the burden of death, that he can save you from that, and he is sufficient enough for that, then can't you also trust him in smaller things? Jesus simply provides for a party. And listen, I want you to know that just as he has provided for your salvation, so too will he provide for what you need today and tomorrow. And in moving on to maybe a little bit more significant things, that struggle that you're having within your marriage, Jesus provides. He has everything you need through it. That battle and journey that you're having with your children, Jesus 
provides. That struggle you have with your work and with your career and with your future, how are you going to make a difference? What are you going to do with your life? What's going what's to be your mark? Jesus has that too. That bad news that you just received from the doctor, that, that dangerous word, cancer, or whatever it is, Jesus will provide. The grief of the loss that you're walking through, Jesus will provide. Jesus, if he's big enough, if he's sufficient for the big stuff, then listen, we can also trust him in the small things. And if I can trust him in the big things, I can trust him in the small things. The fact of the matter is I can trust him with everything. And what he desires from us, what he desires from you, is that you would just simply believe in him. There's, a, there's a, three types of people that Jesus describes after seeing the things he did. The first, the first response to the first type of people is, is what we see here in verse 11. They believe. You know, many people will see the work of Jesus and, and acknowledge the work of Jesus and believe in Jesus. There's another type of person that Jesus describes. It's in John chapter, chapter 12, uh, verse, uh, verse 47, uh, 37. Jesus describes this type of person. And he says, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe. You see, the second type of person is a person that sees the work of Jesus, that witnesses the work of Jesus, but will not give Jesus credit and will not believe in him. We, we cross people like this all the time. It's undeniable that God's worked in your life. Listen to your testimony. Listen to the work of your life. Listen to what Jesus has done in you. But no, no, they, they refuse to believe. They reject and will not believe in Jesus. I wouldn't be surprised if in a room of this many people, there are some of you in that category. But I want you to understand something, if that's you. You are sitting in a room of people who have been transformed by Jesus Christ. Their lives are not the same today than they were before they met Jesus. Their eternity has changed. They're walking and living with hope. Just look around. You're welcome to deny it. But your denial will not change the fact that Jesus has changed me. The third type of person Jesus describes in John chapter 12, or John describes in John chapter 12, verse Verse 42, notice what he says, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the type of person that sees it, believes it, but they won't let go. They won't let go of the grip of this world. They won't let go of the fear that they have of man. What are other people going to think? If I believe in Jesus, if I surrender to Jesus, then everybody's going to think I'm a Jesus freak or I'm, I'm nutty or I'm weird. And so they won't let grow. The world's got a grip on them. The opinion of mankind has a grip on them. And because of their fear of mankind, they are giving up. On what mankind could never give them. They are choosing the approval of man over the approval of God. They are choosing the limited opinion of man over the eternal life of him. That is a fool's bargain. So my question to you this morning, 
And this is for all of us, whether you're a believer of one day or of a lifetime or you're not one at all. Do you believe? Do you believe that he is all you need? Let's pray.